Hello, my friends. You've probably heard my voice on the episode intros by now, and soon you'll be hearing a lot more of me. My name's Adam, and I'm the executive producer of the podcast, and I'm going to be hosting a lot of the episodes coming up, along with some other very special guest hosts for the Modern CTO Summer Takeover. Today we're talking to John, the CTO of SS&C Health, and we discuss how SS&C Health is enabling pharmacies to better serve their customers the future of personal data privacy in healthcare, and creating a company culture where everyone feels comfortable openly sharing their thoughts and ideas. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hi, Adam. Hey, John. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Where are you calling in from? I forgot. I'm calling in from uh, Northern Virginia. Oh, cool. We're uh, here in rainy Florida, not not whatever. Where in Florida? Uh, Bradenton. It's about an hour south of Tampa. Uh, I was actually there three days ago. For real? I was in uh, Captiva Island. Very cool. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, around that area. I don't know how far Braden is, but. Uh, I, I'll say I've heard of the island name. So it's got to be close, right? Sanibel, Captiva, yeah. Oh, okay. By Sanibel. I know where that is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool, man. I, I know we had a prep meeting a while ago. Or a you while got, back, like, yeah. An overview of what to expect. But yeah, it's just, this is the podcast. We're just hanging out, talking. Um, sure. Very casual. Uh, is it cool if I just give you a little bit of my background before we Definitely. get started? Cool. So I've always been pretty interested in technology, though I don't think it was really in the cards for me to do a career as a developer. Um, I started a competitive programming team back when I was in school and we traveled around the state of Florida doing that. We were terrible, man. We lost every <laughs> competition um, and was also somehow president of computer club, but uh, that's couldn't, cool. Couldn't really make any of the stuff I tinkered with work, you know, but yeah. um, enough, enough dipping my fingers into like, maintain interest though <laughs> but i ended up going to school for marketing uh and pursuing a career in audio so about a year ago there's a podcast production internship here at the modern cto podcast and i took that because it was a really cool confluence of my interests and i started as with a cohort of about five interns i ended up being the only intern hired out of that and so i started full-time there and Joel, the owner of the business, was super receptive to my ideas for improving the podcast and the business. So he promoted me to executive producer. And now I'm running the production team here and pretty much the podcast as a whole. And we're doing this cool modern CTO summer takeover where I'm, awesome. ho I'm hosting most of the episodes. We're having some other guest hosts on potentially. And uh, yeah, just as I'm moving into leadership roles in my career. I'm just super excited that I get to talk to awesome leaders like you and uh, have this opportunity to learn. Yeah. Uh, should I give you a little bit of my background? Absolutely. Let's hear it. <clears throat> yeah. So it's interesting that, you know, a lot of people who work in 
computers, at least there's some intersection with marketing. Uh, I went to school for business and computers. Uh, and while I was, uh, while I was in university, I did a lot of research. Uh, but I also uh, ran the newspaper, university newspaper as editor in chief. So I have, uh, you know, I have that eye for, you know, uh, being able to build, uh, and, and kind of maintain media and things like that. And, and kind of started, uh, my cut my teeth on, um, uh, financial services. I lived out of the New York, uh, city area. And yeah, and then worked out of um, a few different large financial services companies uh, until I landed here at SSNC. Uh, my background's always really been in software architecture, building uh, products and operating large infrastructure. And, you know, I, I, I did that for a long time at uh, Bloomberg LP uh, in various different roles. And joining SSNC, got to continue my career and uh, have an awesome opportunity, have had an awesome opportunity building out the product development team here at SSNC Health for uh, about 18 months now. It's been pretty awesome. Very cool. Uh, what, what were you doing at Bloomberg? At Bloomberg, uh, I started off uh, in equity derivatives, so kind of uh, building out pricing services uh, for you know end uh, end um, uh, users of the terminal platform, and then uh, got a great opportunity to kind of uh, move down to the Washington D.C. area to start up a, a brand new team called Bloomberg Government, a web product focused on basically building uh, government uh, products around the government's uh, legislation and and uh, news alerts and things like that for. Uh, people who are kind of following all that lobbyist and those kind of businesses. And then that's right around the point where the SRE fad kind of uh, took over DevOps, took over kind of the industry. So I really um, started the first web operations team at Bloomberg, and that grew into a kind of a career of, uh, of SRE, infrastructure building, automation, and took me to kind of um, running and managing teams that uh, built reusable infrastructure for all the services and um, products at Bloomberg uh, to basically run on top of. So think like internal private cloud, like at Amazon. Interesting, man, that's crazy. So like you're really like on the leading edge of that whole movement pretty much. I don't know if I'd, I'd call it the leading edge <laughs> of the movement, but I definitely was I definitely was involved very early on. And it's really kind of the curiosity, I think, that a lot of software developers have where you get a problem in front of you. And, and what actually got me the most interested in the DevOps movement was we had a whole bunch of uh, Macintosh, uh, you know, Apple computers that um, were new in the firm uh, for uh, developers to use. And we didn't have a great way to manage the software or manage the, um, the deployment of just the developer tools on that system. And that's the first moment that I was like, all right, well, we can automate this. We can make this a lot easier, and especially since um, you know, it was something that drastically affected developer productivity. That's super cool. Did did any of that end up end up getting spun out? Um, um yeah, you know, what's interesting is it, it got spun out. It made me create a lot of uh, uh relationships in and outside the company with uh fellow practitioners. And what really it, it really was the the jump start of, hey, we actually need this on a scale beyond just making developers more productive, but also making our operations of uh of websites and applications more productive. And that's really internally with I mean I'm not with a whole bunch of other, uh, you know, as every organization goes through kind of that DevOps transformation around that time. That's how it started. And it starts like that, you know, in, in pockets of large organizations that uh, all over the, you know, all over the sector. And we really then spun it into, okay, we need this. Uh, we need this not only, you know, for two or three or four products, but we need this at the scale for the whole company. 
That's really interesting. Yeah, I just I just asked that because given our demographic of people that listen, a lot of the companies that come on the podcast are developer tools. Um, mm -hmm. And so many of those, like, it's such a common story that they're like, um, they came out of an internal tool at a larger yeah. organization, and now they're their own thing. So yeah, that's that's really cool. I think what's yeah, I think what's interesting about that is uh, it's funny because all of those tools that kind of start internally and grow to a larger uh, ecosystem, they're extremely, extremely useful to uh, just building products and building you know great um, uh, teams, and that was really at the heart of where I started. Uh, in my career down that path. So, uh, you know, I think most, like most developers that kind of turn to the SRE role, that's, that's really at their heart of their like passion. Like, Hey, I want to make my life and my cohorts, uh, and potentially people on the outside better and more efficient. And what's interesting is, yeah, that, that really, you know, it's very self-serving, but then it also says, well, you know, the self-serving part of this also means better business and better business outcomes. And that's kind of the natural progression, I think, for a lot of places. Yeah, it's all it's huge ripple, butterfly <laughs> yeah. effect, whatever you want to call Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. So how did you get involved at SSNC? You weren't originally at SSNC Health, right? You were yeah. at uh, the main technologies, yeah. right? Yeah, so I had, a, I had an awesome uh, opportunity to kind of join... SSNC uh, to lead kind of internal automation team, like software infrastructure organization. And really the idea there was uh, an extension of what my career had been at that point for about seven years, making developers internally more successful and more uh, proficient and using better tools, right? All the things you just had mentioned, I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners uh, build towards, right? And what we wanted to do internally is we have a lot of investments in uh, physical infrastructure and tooling and data centers. And it's like, great, we need to leverage this and make this more efficient internally, but also more efficient for our customers. So uh, I came in uh, and was able to, you know, uh, spend a lot of time talking and listening to developers that just like me, you know, prior had frustrations and, and needed infrastructure, needed things fast, needed things alar alarms, need to be able to rely on these uh, pieces and started to uh, slowly introduce uh, things like source version control and manage databases. And ultimately, we got to a point where we built a um, internal private cloud that allows developers to click a button, get a virtual machine, deploy applications, um, and uh, get things like load balancers and uh, and other types of uh, primitives that I think a lot of companies who who use the public cloud take for granted because you know they, they get those every day with Amazon, Google, or or, or Microsoft, uh, and we were able to do this internally now on top of our own infrastructure, which was pretty sweet. That is pretty sweet. So yeah. before we get like into it, into it, can you give like a brief overview of what SSSC Tech does um, for listeners that might not know? Yeah, I mean SSNC Tech is a is a is a large organization that primarily focuses around financial services, right? We we provide financial services to a lot of the organizations in the world that deal with, uh, you know, deal with uh, offer either you know retirement solutions, offer uh, tax and and uh, and hedge funds, uh, and and a lot of the companies that are behind uh, those things uh, rely on our software and the ability for us to deliver our data and and our services in a timely manner in, in order to deliver their members and their their customers their own experiences. And the health portion of the business uh, is in a similar uh, fashion. Uh, people rely on us to be able to deliver, um, you know, 
prescription and medical information about their uh, their day to day lives. And you know, we we operate platforms that make sure that when you go to the pharmacy, uh, that you don't pay too much money, that you don't get the wrong uh, types of drugs, that when you go to your, uh, your your doctor, that your providers appropriately get paid, and that and that you don't uh, out of pocket pay too much money. That's very cool. So how did you go from SSNC Tech to SSNC Health? It was a great, it was an interesting kind of transition. Uh, I started to, uh, as I said, uh, being a software developer and an architect for most of my career, I started to get involved internally with a whole bunch of different teams and organizations and businesses inside of SSNC. And as uh, as I started to dive more and talk to more of the developers and the business leaders, um, it just just kind of naturally happened. I started to help solve problems and help uh, come up with solutions in order to make our business and deliver our uh, our products a little bit faster for some customers. And one of the you know one of the kind of I think the the awesome things that we were able to do was uh, use the agile methodologies for delivering software and, and basically go from a, a product. Uh, inception directly to an MVP uh, for for a particular uh, customer in about eight weeks, which was which was awesome. And um, one of the cool things about that particular project, it really kind of opened everyone's eyes to all right. Well, listen, we can do some really really cool and meaningful things for our customers, and it doesn't necessarily need to be on a, you know a quarterly quarterly or yearly release cadence. Yeah, are are you able to share like what? like a specific example of what one of those projects was that you were able to roll out so quickly like that? Yeah. I mean, that, that particular, that particular project actually dealt with our core pharmacy platform and it allowed for us to uh, take some metadata from, uh, from as you're at the point of sale. So when you're actually going and getting your, your information uh, right before you sign to, to get your drugs from the pharmacy, uh, we basically were, were able to take some of the information and ensure that if a pharmacy or an organization was trying to get fraudulent fraudulent claims um, that it would uh, detect kind of if those claims were fraudulent and think of things like basic measures of, you know, the number of prescriptions per user, number of prescriptions per pharmacy, if it's a certain type of prescriptions. And the key here was to make sure that you didn't have any particular uh, users that were abusing the system and getting things like opioids. And really, it wasn't meant to uh, it wasn't meant to do anything more than protect people and protect the the healthcare plans so that they could outreach to the particular uh, pharmacies and let them know, hey, listen, we think you might have a uh, something that's happening here and you should look into it. That's super cool. All the stakeholders that come in to help out with like huge problems like that. But then there's also the flip side of that problem where like there's the people that I, I mean, people I know have prescriptions that when they run out, they only have like a three-day window that they can yeah. fill it in. And that's like mainly because of trying to protect against the people that abuse the system and get like too many drugs. But yeah, I don't know. That's just a, a big, think, hard problem. <laughs> I think the way, yeah, and no, it is. And I think the way you, you can look at it like that is, is that before we had tools like what we built uh, in place, that really your only way to prevent things like that is to have those hard time limits on when uh, individuals could refill their prescriptions, right? Oh, so your tools are like actually enabling extensions of those time limits. Well, yeah. And what I, what I would really say is that is having tools that allow for these types of analytics and give the power of uh, the power of that in front of people, the decision makers, that they then can say, hey, listen, 
rather than like have these hard limits on some medications, we can now start to use these tools to say, hey, identify specifically when and where this might be happening. So then you can start to assess, hey, maybe it's a, maybe we can now actually pull the restrictions back a little. So the whole intent here is to have tools that give the ability for uh, decision makers and healthcare plans to be able to make those types of decisions that affect members. That's really cool. So it's like enabling them to treat it more on a case-by-case -case basis rather than just implementing a blanket solution. Yeah, and I think once you start to get once you start to get kind of data, right? It's all about data. Yeah. The more data you get, you can now start to see outliers. And when you start to see outliers, instead of having that blanket solution, you can start to pinpoint on outliers and say, "Hey, listen, rather than the blanket solution of stopping a per particular prescription. Instead, we can say, hey, listen, we see an outlier where this is happening. We can go after that outlier and then we can make a policy decision internally. And then maybe we can you know, ease up a little bit here. Very cool. So is that what most of your customers are uh, like pharmacies and um, like customer serving healthcare providers? Yeah, very business. Yeah. So I, I would say sp particularly pharmacies, but healthcare plans and medical plans, right? So we're, if you were to kind of look at it from a traditional financial services or even like a SaaS provider, um, we're really the, the glue that allows for these plans to be able to offer these platforms and tools on top of that information and those workflows. So on both the pharmacy and the medical side, we hold the data and we make sure uh, we make sure that the the rules and the configurations that the the plans uh, implement based on their policies and their decisions for their members uh, are adhered to. And when something goes wrong, or when or, or when the data uh, when the data might come in incorrectly, we provide kind of data solutions and analytics and tools on top of that as well to be able to identify those. That's really cool. So, what was what was your role like when you first joined the company? I, I remember when we first met a while ago. You said. You were looking at code that was older than you. <laughs> what was that like? It's going to date myself a little bit, but <laughs> you know, uh, you know, one of the things I have to say since I was um, really young, about nine years old, I've been writing software, and uh, and you know, it's uh, when when you kind of look at code that not only did you not write, but that is uh, really old. It's almost like always like this um, archaeological archaeological dig, right? You kind of get in and you start to, you know, I think of like the Jurassic Park scene where you're kind of going through with the brush and slowly taking off the dirt, right? Yeah. Uh, careful not to break anything. Exactly. And then, but, but then, you, but then once you step back, you're like, Hey, listen, there are areas here that maybe they're broken. There are areas here that, that work currently. And it's not about the software being old necessarily, or the software uh, being not written in a modern uh, programming language, but it's about making the pieces around all fit together. Right. And just like you would with like a fossil, you kind of, sometimes when you, you know, you put the plaster around it and you eventually get it to a place where it's at the, you know, it's at the museum that you can, you might have to start to make little changes and fix things. And eventually you put it in front of people and they can, see it right and enjoy it um the first couple yeah the first couple of days i was here i was looking at software that you know definitely was uh aged let's say <laughs> older uh but still you know looks pretty good it's uh the whole you know the whole point is that it's like can we take some of the modern practices of software development continuous integration automated testing time boxing delivery and release schedules apply it to the existing software and then take a look at the processes and say hey let's take components of the software, break it out and start to make it more efficient. And that's really about, you know, that, that's, that's kind of how I've approached every problem I've ever dealt with large systems, because you always have to just break it down to smaller pieces and then look at each piece is the each piece that's as small as it can. And then say, okay, can we, can we fit these together slightly differently? Cool. So would you say you've like done a lot of modernization since? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, modernization, and it's one of those words that's like, uh, you know, it's a buzzword. But yeah. I think the interesting thing about modernization as kind of a philosophy is that you're always changing, right? You're always making software or systems more, uh, work better in the current environment they're running in, and that doesn't necessarily mean rewriting the whole software or completely taking a piece of software that was uh, that is working perfectly fine and, and just just for you know one reason or another completely changing it. What it does mean is making it look and feel better for the end user and look and feel potentially more efficient or or maybe even a completely different user interface for that user. So most of what we do now is building solutions on top of our existing platform, removing pieces, making it more efficient, more modern, and then uh, and then in, in, an, in an awesome opportunity, building a completely new product or platform that integrates with everything. And that's where you get the kind of new greenfield type of projects. Very cool. Has, has there been any challenges like modernizing that are like, because the company's so large and like, I don't know, such a I feel like monolith is like the buzzword, but right. just a large immovable object, you know, the inertia of um, being an, an organization of your size. Has that been a challenge with the modernization? It's definitely, I mean, there's always challenges with any type of transformation, right? Um, and, and in particular, you kind of hit the nail on the head with any large organization. There's always there's always issues and inertia and to move things because, and to be fair, like people look at things that are that are performing, that are performant, that uh, do as they do what it says in the box and say, well, why do we need to change something that works? Well, the answer is because, it'd be really because we want it to be better and to be able to solve problems that we haven't necessarily foreseen yet in the future. Or maybe there's a a particular solution that it doesn't do great. And in order to do that, we need to kind of shift things and move things. Is it hard to do some things in a large organization that it would be if it was like a startup? Oh, absolutely. And I think that because because you have to remember the software that we operate in particular in SSNC Health affects millions of people every day. In particular, at some of the times of their, you know, when they're most vulnerable and most needy, right? They're They're looking for healthcare. And it doesn't matter if it's drugs or medical or whatever. And and I'm sure as anyone who's kind of in the healthcare network, they understand that that's also the mo- some of the most frustrating things to deal with. So you want to be very cautious and careful when you do work on those things because you don't want to create pain for people. And 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 I think that's really the most important thing here. But from an organization perspective, you're, you're, we always hit inertia, but uh, I think technologists and business people, they sit down and we all kind of move towards the uh, common goal of you know making a better product. Very cool. So what does the future look like at SSNC Health? What, a, what are some cool stuff you're working on now? I think one of the coolest things we're working on now uh, beyond just you know modernization is we built a brand new digital platform. And, uh, you know, the first release of that happened recently and we were able to, to take a, uh, a brand, uh, kind of a new spin on being able to offer a single application that can be maintained and developed by one team, but deployed to the web, Android and, and iOS uh, platforms without having to make major changes. And the way that this was built in a uh, kind of microservice and modern service oriented way, we're now able to offer really interesting solutions that can integrate with not only our you know software that we've built but also software that our customers uh, leverage themselves internally in their own environments and the cool thing about that application 
is it's really the first opportunity that we've had to kind of cross the cross both uh, barriers of pharmacy and medical and and have the ability for us to uh, give a single solution that looks clean is slick is sleek it's brand new and again it shows really that you know you can build uh, awesome solutions on top of things that are you know a little bit aged yeah absolutely so you're uh, you're doing some work with mobile then and I, I heard iOS and Android in there yeah, so it's a it's like a, a hybrid mobile application. It's built on uh, you know um, what's Apache. Hi- what's hybrid mobile application? Yeah, so hybrid mobile application is a is an application really where you write the majority of the software logic in JavaScript, and then in the background when it's actually doing the build, you either build it into a web application, an iOS application using native widgets, or inside of a uh, Android application using Andro- native Android widgets. And the application logic itself, rather than having to write it three times, um, is able to basically write it once. You write a whole bunch of tests between all the platforms. And when you do your continuous integration and automated testing, you're basically launching small little instances of each of those uh, platforms and you're running tests against uh, the devices, right? So that when we, as a software developer, we would, ha- you know, in, you know, 10 years ago, we would have to have three teams maintaining all three of those applications. It's a lot of people. Not yeah. only that, it also means that features and functionality get released at different periods of time. So with this new approach, we're now able to release the same feature and functionality across all three platforms uh, and maintain it with a single team. That's really cool. Yeah, I remember... Um... Five years ago, having an Android phone just meant you didn't get the same updates <laughs> on apps. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, and you know what's interesting is that you there are still some things that are slightly different on all the platforms, but for majority of applications, I'm sure everyone uses you know a social media application or uses their banking application. Uh, they pretty much operate the same on you know the web or or uh, or any of the other mobile devices, and it's really about okay, identify identify the features and functionalities you need. And take advantage of maybe some of the other really cool bits that uh, only work on one or the other. And we, you know, for the most part, they all have the same things that our customers need. Very cool. So when I'm thinking about doing mobile application development, specifically in healthcare, that sounds like it would be really challenging with the personal data involved, like on people's devices and all the regulations specific to healthcare and the challenges presented there. What's it, what's it like working through that? You know, uh, we're used to it by now, but yeah. I think coming from you know coming from a perspective of you know uh, maybe not being used to working with that data, you just take us you just take care to uh, how you set up your services and your databases, and in some cases, like like I had mentioned, you're now accessing customer information uh, that may not even be with inside of your own uh, system. So you have to be sure you use things like, you know, transit layer security, you, use, you make sure that logins and things like that are, are appropriately uh, identified per the user. So you use things like SSO, multi-factor authentication, all the things that most people are now starting to become common with. But the nice thing about a mobile and a web application is that in both of those cases, that data is only kept very briefly on those devices, only while the person that's using it is actually uh, is viewing it. And that in of itself means a short-lived time that it can be on the device. And when you close the application, it's not going to pull more information until the next time you log into it. So you get kind of a nice little uh, circular like, hey, log in, get my data, and then my data is gone. And by definition, it's, it's a lot more secure. 
but then you take advantage of all the other things that you know most people are used to uh, inside of their cloud environments where you isolate your your systems and services that access it and you do things like access controls and everything that most people are common commonly used to now that they use public cloud environments so I, earlier you were talking about um, how you were able to build out a private cloud environment at SSNC. What are some of the advantages there of a private cloud environment versus running on a public cloud environment? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a cost advantage. If, if, you're, if you're a large organization that uh, either rents or owns their own facilities, right, then you can obviously buy hardware, uh, commodity hardware, a lot cheaper uh, and then get a lot more runway with it, right? So um, the, the best thing there is you can build hardware specific to the solution you're trying to solve. And, you know, I think for some of the large parts of SSNC that do things like, uh, you need things like very fast uh, operations per second for disk. Um, those are things that you can get much more performance out of than you would on a shared environment inside the public cloud, because now we're dedicated hardware specifically for your purpose. So the the we really take the, we married the the ability for us to have dedicated solutions for each of our businesses as needed with the ability to have self-service tools for our developers to allow them to get at those pieces of hardware fast. Have you have you heard of a company called Grok, G-R-O-Q? No, I haven't. They came on the podcast recently, um, their CEO, Jonathan Ross. And so there's they're a spin out from a Google X project. Okay. And they make these chips that are just incredibly efficient, specifically for AI processes. And they said their main use case right now is in financial services. Mm -hmm. And that just made me, when you were talking about being able to dedicate, run like a, your own hardware to those processes, I don't know. I just think you should check them out. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, in the, in the case, uh, you know, you probably see behind me, I have a little, maybe you don't, cryptocurrency rig that I built a while ago. Oh, cool. Um, but but in, in the same in the same vein, those are very specific, uh, you know, GPUs that were designed for, you know, doing high operations. And in, in this case, in a private cloud environment, you basically have the ability to now go deploy a whole set of those uh, of those chips and then give access to only certain users that want to use it. And you can uh, do interesting things a lot faster in some cases and mostly a lot cheaper. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's. The industry is going an interesting way with a lot of companies now. Uh, I think Oxide's one of them where they're starting to offer kind of these um, these all-in-one solutions uh, that are very purpose-built and, and live inside of a data center. So I think we're we're at a point where you know clouds taking over for a lot of SaaS businesses, but there's still a lot of companies like SSNC that that need uh, really fast and, and flexible compute inside their own facilities. Yeah, would you guys have any use for quantum computing at SSC yet? Uh, I'm definitely not in the <laughs> in the quantum computing sector, but I imagine you know if there was uh, there's there's probably cryptography types of um, problems that we're we're researching that definitely uh, that that could use quantum computing uh, to do those types of factoring and things. Um, but I'm sure there's a use case. I'm probably not aware of it though. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just it's crazy because I mean I've always thought of that as such a futuristic, non-real yeah. technology, you know, but you can actually access quantum machines today through, I, I know Azure has an Azure quantum right. like arm that they partnered with a couple companies that have built quantum machines and you can just, you can access them right in the programming language Q sharp and run oh, wow. stuff on quantum machines. Yeah. They, they built out like, I think Microsoft built out an entire quantum development kit. That's awesome. Yeah. It's so, 
It's so crazy. It's the future. And Q Sharp sounds like it probably fits into the .NET platform. So you have this interesting hybrid uh, development environment and you have the ability probably, I'm, I'm just guessing, to leverage all the tools and everything that comes along with developer productivity around that environment on top of a quantum computer, which is, you know, I think 10 years ago, quantum computing, eh. <laughs> there's this thing. It's just another thing called this cloud. That's not going to be anything important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. So talking about the future of healthcare, are like, is there like market pressure for people to have more access to their personal health data? Because I know that's something that comes up a lot. We were actually just talking to Tim Berners-Lee on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, inventor of the web because he's building a new platform. Semantic lets, web or? Uh, it's called, he's he's working with a company called Inrupt and they're building a platform called Solid where it allows you to keep all of your data in, they call it a pod. And then you provide people access to your pod when they want it rather than other outside entities providing you access to your data when you want it. It's a very decentralized approach. I don't know whether or not it's actually utilizing blockchain technology. I haven't gone mm -hmm. that deep, but it's really interesting. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are on utilizing decentralized, possibly blockchain resources for health data. Yeah. So, I mean, health, the health interoperability solutions are actually quite early in their, in their life cycle, right? So there, there's kind of standards called FHIR, F-H-I-R, uh, that, that basically define uh, resources primitives for different types of uh, healthcare data, right? And then on top of that, you have the, the ability to then log into your provider and say, hey, you know, I want my healthcare information to be accessible to this application or this third-party service. And, and, you know, allow that gives you the ability to now at least federate some of your information. What's interesting in kind of a blockchain situation, decentralized, it solves the problem of needing to make that information available to an, a massive amount of people and for it to be in, a, in an immutable state, right? So that you can rely on the fact that the block hasn't been changed because all the blocks in front of it haven't been changed, right? Right. Um, the, you still have the problem, though, of being able to first do it efficiently, uh, look it up, index it, things like that. But I think it would be an interesting solution to be able to say, hey, listen, all of my information is on the blockchain, but you definitely need to have some security around that because, you know, it, it, the blockchain is available to every provider and every potentially any third party users. Uh, you want to make sure that that data is at the very least opaque enough or or uh, encrypted so that you don't have uh, an opportunity for a bad actor to come in and steal all your all your information. Right. So let's talk about data privacy in healthcare, because I think it's a really interesting subject because we talk about your health data being private in like such a sacred way that like no one should be allowed to see it. But I want every doctor to see it if I'm unconscious right. and they're total strangers, you know? So I think like the actual definition we're working off of is we just want it to be private. We just want people we don't want knowing not to know, right. <laughs> you know, like, health insurance providers and stuff. But that being said, I don't know, I feel like the trend that regular data privacy has taken is that, I mean, if you want to use an iPhone or if you want to use any social media platform, you agree to give away your data. And those things can be pretty essential to operating. And I don't know, if, like if wearables become ubiquitous yeah. and I, I think there's a lot of potential for them for uh, catching like early signs of diseases and whatnot. Yeah. 
Um, and as that, they become more ubiquitous. Do you think there's like a threat of them having a same, same kind of wall in front of it that you have to agree that they get your data to use them? Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely see there, there, there need to be an, there needs to be some way for the end user to at least control which types of data and which types of metadata that you can ascertain from uh, a data set can be published elsewhere, right? And I'll use the example of like the Apple Watch because most wearables people are familiar with that, right? Yeah. The Apple Watch now can do things like take your take your blood oxygen level, takes your heart rate. I read the other day that they're working on a blood sugar indicator for a new version of the Apple Watch. And and all those things together, I mean, at some point, we're going to get to a place where you have so many different sensors on this device that if I just take one sample of that information and look at it, I probably don't know anything about you if it's anonymized. But if then I take the sample of the data over a year, I could probably start to figure out, you know, when you exercise, when you, uh, maybe you have a disease. And in particular, if your heart's doing things, I could probably start, I, I could definitely ascertain, hey, you're an AFib now. That's actually one of the things the, the Apple Watch can give you today. So I see these wearables actually doing that because they're doing it now, doing it in the future for much more and much better things. Now, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is not only who, how do we want to provide the data, but also in the case that you gave earlier, if I'm unconscious, if I'm in a car wreck, if, uh, you know, if I'm for, you know, in, in a situation where I can't make the decision to give you that data, there needs to be the ability for a first responder or a, a clinician to say, hey, listen, I'm, I need this information, but this person can't give it to me. And I, and, I can, and I don't know who can authorize that. And it's a level of trust that I think uh, that we haven't necessarily seen yet with these devices. And that's also really challenging because, yes, you want someone to be able to get that data when your life depends on it. But you can't really make a back door without making a back door for everyone. Um, True. And what's also, you also want, uh, just like GDPR in the EU, you want the ability for that data to be deleted when you, they no longer need it, right? Yeah. So, you know, if, I'm, if I go to the hospital because you know, I have heart palpitations or, you know, I think I might have a heart attack and then it just turns out that, you know, I ate bad chili, <laughs> I don't want, <laughs> I don't necessarily want the, you know, the, the hospital to... <laughs> <laughs> to be able to have all that information. So, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, but the point, you know, it's a really silly example, but the point is, is that I should be able to have control over my data, not only at the time that I accept that user uh, end user agreement, but the time that I get service and I eventually don't need service anymore. Yeah. I, that makes sense. It's just, uh, the thing that doesn't make sense to me is <laughs> the solution. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Listen, it's not easy. And I think one of the interesting things about the as more and more wearables are, are ubiquitous and more and more companies start to uh, add more sensors or add different applications on top of them, you start to say, okay, well, it's creating not only uh, first order data from the sensor, but then second and third order from the data that we ascertain on top of it, right? And one of the things I'd point to is actually over the pandemic over the last 18 or so months, where Apple and Google work together to basically take, you know, your Bluetooth signals, do triangulation, and in an anonymous way that says, hey, we know by your phone that you've been next to someone who that self-reported as a COVID uh, positive, right? And now we can do things like anonymously alert you, hey, you know, three days ago, you were next to this person who's COVID positive, maybe you should go to the doctor and get a test. So 
you can do it in a secure anonymous way, but then you're limited in some cases how what and you what and what you can actually do with that information. Right. Well, being in the healthcare industry, what was it like for you guys at SSNC Health through COVID? Did was it like kicked into high gear, or did things slow down like it did for everyone else? No, I mean, I mean, I think from a from a operations like com- workplace operations perspective, like everyone, we we immediately went to a, a place in an environment where we're quarantined and we're working from home. And as you can see, I'm still working from home, but from from the perspective of like our customers and the end users you know uh yeah there's a whole there's a whole bunch of things that we needed to do to be able to from our platform provide immediate uh relief and immediate changes to uh the ability for our customers to start to uh be in an environment where we don't want them to go outside and and leverage their benefits and in the cases of uh let's just say prescription drugs a lot of things that happened were things that were on a 30-day refill you said hey no maybe we actually should give them more uh, ahead of time so that they're not going to the they're not going into their car going to the pharmacy standing in line three times over the next few months because we actually don't know how long that the quarantine or the or the pandemic's going to go on for and that's one small example but i think i think there's a lot of sectors and organizations that were affected in a similar way what was it like in i mean i'm sure as an executive at the company you were you were in some pretty serious early conversations i don't know January 2020, like, hey, there's this thing in China that might become a huge world yeah. problem. What was that? What was that like? And then formulating the strategy on how to respond. You know, we have a we have a really really excellent BCP program, business continuity, and this was identified quite early. You know, I would say, and it was something where, like, a lot of things, you know, uh, flu or or other types of uh, outbreaks, um, you know, they, they get flagged. But they they weren't necessarily pandemic level, and you know we we brief like all of our teams, uh, not just health but any team, about these particular things around where you have offices and associates. At first, I would say it really didn't get to be where we felt it was it was going to be a much different thing uh, until probably the middle, of, like everyone else, the middle of the end of February, where we started to get more and more information about onshore. Uh, infection rates, and and yeah, I mean, I'm sure like everyone in the in in the world, we were worried about our families, about our coworkers, and we had to very quickly make a, a business a business and operations decisions about how we're going to continue operating everything globally, uh, where where people for the most part aren't going to be in the office, and we don't really know how long they might not be in the office for. So it was, uh, I bring it back to business continuity because it's extremely important to be prepared for these types of things as an executive or, or even as a person who's, you know, a family member that, that might, you know, need to take care of others. Think about these types of things, be prepared, but uh, actually executing that plan, it's stressful. And, and it's amazing. And I'm sure everyone has their stories, but it's amazing how quick things came together and how everyone just, just uh, was able to get it done across the world, which is yeah. wild. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, today we're, we're kind of on the back end of it. Are you guys doing anything at SSNC Health to help with the vaccine rollout? You know, uh, we, we have we have our, our standard kind of changes due to our platform to enable it to be easier for our healthcare providers to do programs that would make it easier for the rollout and, and on both the same on pharmacy and the medical side. Uh, you know, I, I think I think some of the things that we're doing 
that that makes it easier is really inwardly focused on our people and our associates or and our people and their families rather. And, you know, we, we're making it much more flexible for people to work. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're being very cautious, even though, you know, in the, in the United States, we're on the tail end. There are other areas in the in the world that they're still suffering, and we're we're keeping to account. Like, hey, listen, the policies and the procedures, and really just the the compassion that we've shown uh, as an organization over the last you know eighteen months needs to continue. But we need to keep in mind that you know uh, uh, people also they're humans and they want to be able to go back to normalcy and see each other and, and uh, be able to work with their coworkers. So we're definitely taking that, you know, with stride, like every organization I'm sure in the world. Very cool. Would you like to uh, talk about some leadership stuff? Sure. Let's talk. Cool, man. So what, what are you learning right now as a leader at your company? You know, right now I'd say as a leader at my company, I'm 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 learning uh, how to how to be a much better uh, better kind of listener, right? And I know that's kind of a canned answer uh, that a lot of people give, but I don't. You know, I'm I I've never been in a situation where it's it's it hurts more to listen and and hear all aspects of a problem. You get, you get, you know, you all, you have to be able to make a decision. You have to get to a point where you can make a decision. But I think in a situation that I'm thinking of right now, you know, there, there, there are problems where you, you, you're solving a technical problem. And when you're an engineer, you look at all the data points and you look at, you know, how do APIs work together? How do these frameworks work? Maybe we make a technical decision, but in reality, if you, if you step back as a leader and you say, well, is it a technical problem? Maybe maybe there's a solution that is uh, more practical, uh, you know, changing how a workflow works or changing if a if a piece of data or or, or a process happens in, in in our case, you know, if uh, if we have to print something physically and mail it to someone, right? Uh, you know, these are things where you know a lot of companies they don't need to do that. Well, we actually need to make sure that not only do we need to print things and mail them, but we have to make sure that the things that we print are actually legible and uh, and uh, these are things where you. You have to think through as the end user and and as a as a technology leader, I'm learning every day about listening to people and their problems and being able to turn around and say, well, if I was in their shoes, like I understand frustration, but what are some kind of out of the box ways to think about things? And I think it's not just engineering; it's 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 engineering's the easy part. Yep, people's the hard part. People's so- always the hard part. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about how important it is to listen and hear all sides of the problem. How do you create a culture at your company where people from all sides of the problem are comfortable sharing so that you can get a full nuanced yeah. perspective? Yeah. I mean, that's not always easy. Um, and, and it's not always easy for a lot of different reasons. For smaller companies, it's it's much more direct. You can say, hey, you know, email the CTO or email the CEO and or, or, or use you know, text or, or teams or whatever uh, collaboration software you're using. For larger parts of the organization, you need to start do think. You need to start be very, uh, be very um, forceful about saying, "Hey, take some time away. Think about uh, think about how you need to, uh, as an organization, be better." And and in in the cases that you know, I think uh, very a lot about um, making sure that people who uh, don't necessarily always have an uh, opportunity to be a leader or in a situation where uh, they can take a project or or, or a uh, problem and run with it. Put them in front of others that do and and let them hear uh, collaboration and give them the opportunity to be in the seat and at least listen. 
and then and then slowly start to say, hey, listen, you know, are, are you interested in trying out or being the point person on this? And I think, you know, being patient and and being in, in a situation where uh, you are uh, given that opportunity allows people to kind of make their own decision if they actually want to kind of step up and, and, you know, be in a situation they weren't normally given the opportunity to do. Speaking of uh, engineers that are going to take on like more management responsibilities what what's one piece of advice you'd give to that individual contributor that's looking to step into a management role um never be the person who is the the reason why software doesn't get deployed (laughs) (laughs) and you know as as a as like i said i've i've been writing software since i was nine years old and you know of course it's not you know building applications but you, you it's in it's in my it's in my personal uh, you know blood. It's in my culture. Like I love it. I live and breathe it. But when you're when you're a leader of people and you and you you rely on other people, they need to get the, the work done. You can't be the reason why they can't do their job. What your job as an engineering leader, a manager, team lead, whatever the word is, is to basically be their advocate and and move away all obstacles so that they can be the most efficient at the job they need to do. And at the end of the day, if if you are in a situation where you're blessed to be able to uh, write a little bit of software, make sure it's not the thing that's going to break and, and wake up an SRE <laughs> or your engineer at three o'clock in the morning because they're not going to be happy and they have a right not to be happy. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I, I know that's like that's like a common question that gets asked of like, how much code should a CTO be writing? But yeah, at a different and I'm, I'm gonna I'm, I don't write enough. I don't write any code now, but I do get the opportunity occasionally to sit down, do code reviews, and uh, I'll, t- I'll carve some time out and say, "Hey, listen, there's this new thing that you know, uh, Protobuf or gRPC and Go that I that I you know I want to scratch that itch, and I do a little thing and I show people, hey, listen, this is what I this is what I built, and everyone's like, mm-hmm, yeah, John, that's cool, but we have to do real work.'" <laughs> um, but as a CTO at a large company, I think it's important to to uh, Get your hands involved in at least some of what your teams are working on, especially, especially when you start to talk about things like developer experience, because your developers are the people who are building the products along with the business to be able to uh, to make the, your your customers a better you know a better experience, right? And if they are not productive or they can't get their job done, uh, then then you're doing something wrong. And in order for you to know that, you need to at least have a little bit of hands on keyboard. And but you know, you probably aren't going to get to do it as much as you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the eternal struggle. It Ian. is. <laughs> so how do you keep your developers like with a finger on the pulse of like, because they're sitting there developing code all yeah. day. How do you make sure they still have a finger on the pulse of the customer need? Yeah, I mean, that's that's hard. So uh, one of the things we've been extremely successful at uh, in, in, in different newer projects has been involving uh, in kind of agile fashion, involving our developers directly with our customers, right? So they sit down and they actually talk to the customers. And to the point earlier about leadership, it's not me, it's not uh, one of my directs talking to the customer, it's the developers and, and the people writing the code. And they create the relationships, they get to see how the customer is using their software, they get to hear the feedback. And not only does it create a better product, but it creates a better uh, cohesive relationship with our customers. And and that's how we built the digital project. It was It's extremely successful. It's built, I think it's been one of the best products we've built in a long time. And, and I think by our developers being able to be engaged, now they see 
they get an opportunity to have like a different scratch a different aspect of not just writing code they actually now get to understand requirements gathering how to test appropriately um some of the problems that they they may cause by a small change and these are things where you know you might not necessarily have an appreciation for when you're writing the code uh, a small change on an application but if you see a person using it on a regular basis you'll have a better uh you'll have a better um idea of what might cause a problem that makes sense yeah that's super smart it seems so simple but i feel like a lot of companies aren't doing that to having their developers interface directly with customers yeah i mean it's sometimes it's not possible um right. and, and and not so much that it's not possible from you know it's not physically possible but it's maybe it's not possible because what you're working on isn't isn't easily uh kind of trans uh, a customer can't easily look at it and say hey yeah this affects it one way or the other but i think there's always opportunities where you can put people in in front of in the seat and say hey how do you use this software and and then in the background you have someone who's a you know architect that writes down say hey this hits this 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 and this and then maybe you don't have the direct interaction of talking to the end user like hey i click on this little button it sends a grpc call to you know uh, kong to kubernetes uh, to a postgres database and then you know hey if it, the query's you know uh, cached maybe it hits memcache um but but then the person the architect could say hey listen this one call here is is so slow then we need to do a little bit of caching here, and at least then you get a uh, you get an idea of how everything flows through the system. And I think what's interesting now about uh, Zoom, we're using it today. Uh, you can do things like recording, and now you can uh, archive them and have people watch them. So it's it's much more of a when back in the old days we used to call it like a user experience lab, where people would come in and sit down and start to use your product. You have cameras all over them and uh, almost like a candid camera, see how they use it, see how they get frustrated. Well, now you can actually kind of record some of that stuff. It's a little bit easier. Yeah, I was going to say it's like, uh, I was going to mention that working remotely probably made that developer customer connection much easier. Yeah. Just because everyone's so used to it. But I do, I do think so. And I think not only is everyone used to it, but there used to be a stigma in a lot of sectors about, uh, you know, uh, people that didn't necessarily go and be able to sit down with customers, not being the point contact to the, to a customer. Right. And I think now with the, one of the positive things about the pandemic is that as far as I've been aware, every organization has no problems now with like saying, Hey, you know what, let's get on, a, let's get on a, a video conference and talk this through. And, and you, and you see the person you can interact with them. It's not the same thing as sitting across from them, but it's much better than uh, sending an email or being on the phone and not being able to at least observe. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. Miles ahead of email. One touch a day. It's like, Hey, this doesn't work. And then the next day, Oh, sorry. Does it work yet? Especially with time zones, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you might send an email in the morning and then the person doesn't get in and then you don't get it back till the next day. At least with video, you can set a specific time, log in, get immediate feedback and then go and solve the problem. Absolutely. So I just got a couple more questions for you. Sure. Is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. So how do you approach failure within your teams and like really try to implement the learning from it? Yeah, I think I, you know, I think being able to kind of have continuous the ability to kind of continuously step back and look at like failure successes and failures is important in uh, in building software, um, building systems and products because you know a lot of people look at failure and they say, oh, you know, you did something wrong, slap your hand and don't do it again. Well, uh, from an operations culture coming from building infrastructure in my career, I look at failure as oh that's an interesting problem I didn't think of that like why why did that happen? And 
you know, that's how I even approach some of the some of the problems that we have day to day building products. You know, hey, we didn't think of this. Why didn't we think of this? And eventually, you know, you go down the the who, what, where, when, why, and then you keep asking a lot of whys. Like, well, why didn't you th- why didn't we think of this? What happened here? Maybe when we do a certain we do a certain uh, sequence of events. This happens, and I think what's interesting is when when in my career when I, when I started. Uh, getting heavily into DevOps and building virtual machines and getting to understand uh, how when you configure uh, certain things different ways, they do, they behave differently. You, you start to think more about the, oh, wow, okay, that's, that's a, it's a bug, it's a problem, it's a failure, but I can learn something from it. And you can apply the same thing to product development. It's just, uh, it's just, you got to be a lot more careful <laughs> because uh, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to spend, you know, uh, three months uh, building a feature and then find out, oh, we didn't listen to our customer at all. That's a that's a much different problem, and we've had those problems too, and those kind of problems I think are solved with you know having more of what we talked about, you know, getting developers in front of customers and listening to feedback. That makes a lot of sense. It's like a a difficult balance to strike. It is. It is. Cool. So, what is like the one piece of advice that you would give yourself when you're stepping into your first managing people role? Um. That's an interesting one. So the first advice uh, I think I give to someone, and, and I, I talked about listening, but I also talk about don't be afraid to make a mistake because, you know, everyone makes mistakes. We're human, but one of the one of the things that I think a lot of new leaders are afraid of is not making a decision because they're worried about making the mistake. Back to the failure part of the conversation, you know, you can't be afraid of failure. You can't be afraid of making a mistake. But if you don't make a decision, you're you're, you're not not only you're not going to get things done, but you're not gonna you're not gonna make mistakes or nothing's gonna happen. So I think it's much better to to listen to all uh, all aspects of your team of the uh, of the product, the business operations. Make a decision, even if it's the decision that's incorrect, you shouldn't be afraid of it because you're going to learn something from it and the team and the business are going to grow because of it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.